Well, we have been walking through some kind of practical outworkings of the new mission statement for the church. Mission statement being the Parkway Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who delight in him, display his love to one another, and declare him to the world. So delight, display, and declare. And the hope was during this semester to kind of walk through some practical methods by which we would delight, by which we would display, and by which we would declare. And the plan was during theological equipping classes on Sunday mornings to kind of rotate through those, to have delight and then display and then declare, and then delight and then display and then declare. So week one was a delight week where we did how to study the Bible. Week two was a display, so displaying uh, your faith to others, displaying the glory of the gospel of the kingdom to others, and that was how to build up the church. Week three was a declare week, how to do a personal evangelism. And then week four, which is this week, was supposed to go back to delight again, but we're not. <laughs> gotcha. You weren't ready for it. Okay, There were some scheduling changes that got made, and so today we're doing another display. So today we're going to be doing display which is how to do the family discipleship. How do we display this, this reality of the gospel of the kingdom to our families, to one another in our homes? So today's lesson is essentially going to be a carbon copy of a teaching that I did about a year ago, back in May of 2022, on family discipleship. But repetition is good. So we're going to get started. I'm going to be talking fast. I'm going to be covering a lot of stuff and I'm going to be covering it quickly. And so literally every single point I have, I would love to do 10 or 15 minutes on, but I'm going to do like 45 seconds or a minute and a half. And so hopefully some of those things will resonate with you and you might want to discover more about them or think more about them or talk more about them, in which case I would love to meet with you and visit over lunch or breakfast or coffee or something like that, if that's something that you desire. But just a heads up, we're going to be moving fast. So if you're a note taker, get your hand ready. Get ready. It's happening, okay? So let's do this. Let's pray, and then we will get to it. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are good, that you love us. And it is because of your love for us that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, that by your spirit you have illuminated the truth of your word, that we might believe the truth about what it proclaims, about who Christ is and what he's done, the way that you have chosen to fix this problem of sin by sending your son, and that through his life and death and resurrection, we now can have life. We can now be called into your family, adopted into your family, made right, justified, declared righteous, and we can become a part of your family. And so as we think about what it looks like to make disciples in our own families, Lord, we pray that you will be near to us, that your spirit will strengthen us. You will encourage our hearts and remind us that we have a good God, and that you love us, and you're for us, and you're not against us, and we don't have to fear, and we don't have to be anxious. In fact, your word commands us not to be those things, and yet we are. We're fearful all the time, and we're anxious all the time, and so we pray that you will forgive us where we have not been obedient. You will strengthen our faith where we find ourselves fearful and anxious, and that we would find joy and peace in the knowledge that we have a good God that we can delight in that would then cause us to display that love that we experience with you to one another. 
So be near to us as we think and consider these things. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Okay. So what is family discipleship? First, we need to take a moment and consider this word because we use it all the time. We use the word discipleship or we talk about making disciples or we uh, say that we should be discipling one another. This is something we say all the time. What exactly do we mean by that word? Well, it really just means to teach and train others in the truth of the gospel of the kingdom. Discipleship is something that's beyond evangelism. Right, evangelism is good. We talked about that uh, just a, a week or so ago. Evangelism is a good thing. It is the kind of starting point where we get. Uh, you see that? I don't know if you saw that. I literally dropped my water and caught it in midair while not looking. Athlete. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. So evangelism is indeed a starting point for discipleship, but discipleship is something that goes beyond that. It's what do we do once someone has come to faith and believes on the truth of Christ. So evangelism is a necessary component to be certain. The gospel of the kingdom that's brought about by the life and death and resurrection of Christ is the foundation of the house that is to be built. Only God can lay that foundation. But once it is laid, once, once God has given this gift of faith, discipleship continues on beyond salvation into the work of teaching and training someone to be faithful to God's word. So it's this practical work of helping someone understand what it really means to be a follower of Christ and how they should live faithfully in the world and how can they live faithfully in the world. So this is the framework of the house that gets built upon that foundation of salvation. And so once someone's heart is changed and they receive this gift of faith and the repentance for sin that comes with it, they have this new heart that desires to know, what do we do now? How do I live now? How do I honor this gift that I've been given? So making disciples is the work of answering those questions, helping someone to understand what it means to walk in the, in the path that Christ has laid out. It's pointing to the answers that are found in God's word. It's dismantling the lies of the enemy and that cloud someone's mind and instead pointing them to the glorious truth of God's word on whatever issue it is that they're wrestling with or struggling with. It's not trying to be the conscience of someone else. It's not trying to play the part of the Holy Spirit. Discipleship is knowing that we're all sinful and we're all bent towards sin, and so therefore we've been charged by God to teach and to remind each other of all that he's commanded. And so some of that work of discipleship is done right here in this room, in rooms like these all over the world where the people of God gather together to worship him, to study his word. Some of that happens there. But much of the work of discipleship happens in relationships that take place outside of a place like this. So what then is family discipleship. It's the making of disciples in the relationships inside your home, in the family, right? It's parents discipling children and husbands and wives discipling one another. So we're going to look briefly at the discipleship of husbands and wives, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about parents discipling children. So husbands and wives first. We haven't even gotten to your notes yet, so just hang on. I'll tell you when we actually start using the notes. So we're going to look briefly at this discipleship of husbands and wives, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time on kids Husbands have a particular charge to disciple their wives, and we see this in Ephesians 5, 
verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So the command being given to husbands is to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And in part, the part of that is to wash her with the water of word, which is a weird phrase, to wash her with the water of the word, which in part it means to point her to and remind her of all that God has said, because it's through the good news of the kingdom that she's been made clean and righteous by grace through faith in Christ. And so God specifically commands husbands to participate in the sanctification, the sanctification of their wives through discipleship, reminding them of who God is and what he's done, reminding them of the truth that has set them free from the bondage to sin. But that does not mean that it's a one-way street. It does not mean that men are meant to, uh, to sanctify and disciple their wives and wives are not meant to go the other way. That is not correct. Wives are certainly meant to play a part in the sanctification of their husbands. And this is part of what it means to be a help to your husband. And I'm only pointing out that husbands have a specific charge to disciple their children and their wives. I'm not trying to make some weird case that it's a one-way street. It's important for us to see that clearly. I've seen it misapplied by husbands a million times who will take this to me. What you need to do is you need to sit your wife down and teach her, just like you might teach your kids. I'm the guy with the answers. You're the one with the questions. I'm the teacher. You're the student. This is what authority in the home looks like, which would be a reasonable conclusion except for the Bible. What else does the Bible say to you, husband? Well, it tells you in Ephesians that you're to nourish and to cherish your wife as Christ does the church. It is this nourishing and cherishing. Is it nourishing and cherishing to patronize your wife and treat her like an elementary student? I think we can agree it's not. It teaches you in 1 Peter that you're to live with your wife in an understanding way, that you're to honor her as the weaker vessel. Living, her with, living with her in an understanding way means that you're truly meant to seek to understand her. You do not attempt to conform her to your image, but instead you observe how God has formed her in his image and you respond accordingly. The idea of being a weaker vessel helps illuminate a bit of what it means to understand her because what weaker vessel does not mean is that she's somehow worse than or less than you, but rather she's more delicate, she's more breakable. She's to be cared for gently. If you have fancy china in your home, you don't just throw it in the dishwasher, you don't just chunk it in the cabinet, and whip it around and throw it on the tables any old time you want, you take very good care of it. Perhaps you even put it in a special cabinet. And when you wash it, you do it by hand. And you dry it off with like a baby kitten. I made this joke a year ago, and everybody thought it was moderately funny then also. <laughs> Emphasis on moderately. Is that because she's less valuable, because the china is less valuable that you treat it that way? No, it's because it's more valuable. The China has greater value, has more sentimental importance. It is of greater delicacy. And we are to treat our wives in a similar way. It's the better stuff than your everyday plates. And so you're gentle with it because it means more to you. 
And wives, the scriptures are clear to you as well. You are to joyfully submit to your husband even if he doesn't nail it, which I think describes all of us. All husbands don't nail it. If he's a little bit patronizing, if he's dismissive, if he's impatient, if you just don't like his approach, the scriptures command you to submit yourself to him. First Peter says you're to do this even if he's disobedient to the scriptures. So it isn't I'll submit to my husband as, as long as he leads me like I think he should or as long as he leads me like I like. Now, it's harder than that. There's a clear command that you should submit to him even if he's disobedient to God's word in the hope that he would be won over to faithfulness by your conduct. Now, does that mean you're intended to follow him into sin? If he commands you to sin, that you must follow him and submit? Certainly not. But there's a difference between him asking you to sin and leading you poorly. And we have to recognize the difference. So discipleship and marriage needs to be much different than that from a parent to a child. It's less like a classroom, like it might be sometimes with your kids, and more like a loving, joyful conversation between a husband and a wife about the beauty and the mystery of God. Rather than constantly looking for sin to point out in your spouse, it's looking for Christ in your spouse. And when you find him, you point it out that they may be encouraged in the Lord. It's reading the scriptures with one another. It's asking each other questions. It's exploring the answers to the questions that we have about God's word together. It's talking together about your strategies for discipling your children so that you can be unified in your approach to making disciples of your kids because you're doing it together. It's confession and repentance. It's praying together. And who's responsible for getting the ball rolling on all of those things? The husband. The husband is responsible for pursuing these things and doing it in a way that has you walking in obedience to all that God commands you about loving your wife. So, with that super fast overview, groundwork in place of discipleship between a husband and a wife, let's get to the nuts and bolts of what discipleship looks like with kids. But before you turn your ears off, if you either don't have kids or if you have kids that are already grown, don't dismiss the rest of this teaching because the things I'm about to share with you are applicable to any relationship, any discipleship relationship, including between husband and wife, or even between friends. But we are going to focus our energy on the discipleship of children in a home now. So parents making disciples of children. So this is an interesting thing because you're dealing with, at least at first, you're dealing with unbelievers. And just like I said a minute ago, discipleship is really the work that gets done after someone comes to faith. So here I have kids in my home, and I'm supposed to make disciples of them, but what if they're not a disciple yet? What if they aren't a believer? What am I supposed to do? So the work, of course, does indeed begin with evangelism. But even before they come to faith, we spend these early formative years with our kids, treating them in some ways as if they are believers, teaching them the way that they're supposed to go. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, if you share the gospel with an unbelieving coworker or friend or neighbor, they, they can just reject it. Say, no thanks, me no likey, I don't want to talk to you anymore, right? I think we're not friends, you're one of those Jesus people, right? That's not the truth, that's not the way it is with your kids. You literally can force them to sit and listen to you. They have to do what you say, right? They can't leave, they have to listen. 
And then second, there's a general command, and this is important, there is a general command on our lives to make disciples that we find in Acts 28, right? Go, therefore, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. But there's a specific command on the lives of parents to make disciples of their kids. You've not been given a choice with your kids. Do I, should I try to make disciples of these individuals? The answer is always yes with your kids, There is some room for debate about who I'm trying to pursue for discipleship outside of my home. Should I try to disciple Bob, who seems to be a new believer, or should I invest my time in this guy? Where should I invest my time? I don't have any choice with my kids. The scriptures are clear. So, almost time for the notes. Are you ready? We're almost there. Page one of the notes. (laughs) This is going to be a four-hour teaching. Here we go. So we're going to begin with some fun alliteration. We're all about the alliteration these days, right? So we're talking about uh, our mission statement of the church, right? Delight, declare, and display. Now we're talking about a framework for discipleship. And it's just these three words, create, capture, and commemorate. So let's look at each of these briefly. Create, these are just categories. These are just things that might stick in your brain and help you as you're thinking about how to do this. Create is the proactive part of discipleship. This is kind of planning specific times to consider the things of God together as a family. It's being mutually encouraged by one another's faith and spending intentional time together for the purposes of better understanding God and his word so that we might look more like Christ. That's create. Second one is capture. This is the reactive part of discipleship. This is being faithful to observe the people in your home and find opportunities to encourage them toward faithfulness in the everyday happenings of life, right? It's walking in the park with your daughter and she sees a pretty flower and you capture that moment to remind her of who created that flower, who came up with those colors, who made it smell good, who made it beautiful to your eyes. God did. It's waking up your teenage son who's running late for his early morning football practice and reminding him that he's agreed to be there and so he needs to let his yes be yes because it honors the Lord. It's hearing your spouse talk about a painful event in their lives and empathizing with them while you remind them that God is near to the brokenhearted. It's also taking the time to leverage each moment of discipline with your children to the point of making the glory of the gospel known to them. It's all these things and a million billion other things in between. This idea of capturing is being faithful to observe the people in your home and finding opportunities to encourage them toward faithfulness in the everyday. Now, for clarity, I'm not going to be talking about discipline of kids today. Most parents of young kids want to talk about one thing, and it's discipline. Do I spank? Do I do time out? How often do I do it? When should they be in trouble? When is obedience defiance? (laughs) Tell me, tell me, tell me. I'm not going to talk about any of that. So if you're feeling that, you have to put it away. And then send me an email and say, I really want to talk about that, and I'll be happy to. But that requires another hour or two hours of conversation all by itself. So we're leaving that out, and we're just talking about the general principles of discipleship today. So we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at each of these three words in a little bit more detail and try to be as practical as possible. But first, I want to tell you where I got my cute little alliteration. I did not just make it up. I do not think it's just a cute idea that I came up with. I believe that this is in the scriptures And so I want us to look at Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. It should be there at the bottom of your first page of your notes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So in this text, which is essentially God telling us parents, when do I want you teaching them about me? God says, I want you teaching them about me all the time. I want you to do it when you're sitting in your house, when you're together in your home, that you be intentional to use your time to proclaim the excellencies of God. That's where I get this idea of create. And then he says, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, when you're doing all the stuff, when you're getting up and getting ready for your day and you're going out and doing stuff and you're walking around, when you lie down at the end of the day, when you're going through the normal mundane details of life, that's what I want you teaching your kids about me. And that's what I mean by capturing these moments. And then third, he talks about things like binding them on your hand and putting them on your doorposts of your house. He's saying, take the things that I've commanded, take the truths about me and remember who I am and remember what I've done. Commemorate the things that I have done for you. Remember them. And so this idea of creating, capture, and commemorate, I think is genuinely laid out by the scriptures. I don't want you to think this is Carl's cute idea. So create, this is that proactive time that's set aside for considering the things of God together as a family. And so a lot of people would, would classify this as being devotion, family devotions, which is fine. But it should just simply be intentional time spent with the Lord and devoted to the Lord. So if you have kids, this is something you're likely already doing with other subjects, all right? You teach them the things you think are important and they need to know. Do you teach your kids the ABCs when they're little? Of course, right? We sing the song and then we realize it sounds just like twinkle, twinkle, little star. We're very disappointed that they couldn't come up with a new melody. Do you teach your kids how to go to the bathroom so you can get them out of diapers? Of course, You teach them these very fundamental basic things. And so if you're willing to dedicate time to teaching them how to read, if you're willing to dedicate time to teaching them how to go to the bathroom, why would you withhold the most important thing, the most significant thing about who their God is and what he's done to fix the problem of sin that they're dealing with, just like you? So if your child were to come to faith, if your child were to believe on Christ but struggle with going to the bathroom, and struggle with reading, that's a win. If you have an eloquent reader who is a great public speaker and knows how to wipe their own booty, but they hate Christ, there's something better that's missing there. And so do not withhold this time from your kids. This is a thing that we often as Christians will say to ourselves, I don't have time, I'm busy. But should we be too busy to do this? Because at the end of the day, children learn by example, right? Even if the example is just an observation, you are teaching your kids with everything you do and every moment you spend teaches your kids something. They learn by watching. I've seen this video a million times. You've probably seen it too. And it's of a kid sitting in his mother's lap at a hockey game and he's wearing a hockey jersey. And we don't know what's happening on the ice, but we can presume that whatever jersey he's wearing, that team must have just scored. Because this like three and a half year old kid is doing this. He's like so 
jazzed and his fists, and he's like, yeah! Where did he learn that? Did he just grow up loving hockey and decide, I'm going to scream with my fists raised and my mouth open? No, he observed his dad doing that. He saw his dad watching hockey on TV. He's like, this is what you do when your team scores. You open your mouth real big, you make a big face, and you shake your fists because you're excited. That's how kids operate. They learn through example. And if we aren't giving an example, then they're learning something there also. So hopefully you already believe that to this, this is an ultimately valuable thing because you demonstrate value with how you spend your time. Ask a kid what their parents love the most. And that kid will usually tell you whatever it is that parent does the most. A little kid will tell you that daddy loves work because he's at work all the time, which is a normal thing to say. Later, he'll realize, oh, daddy's working to earn a living to provide for us and care for us, but he gets home as quick as he can, and he wants to be with us. He actually values us, which is part of the reason he works. And they come to understand that later, but initially, they think daddy loves work. And the point is this, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And your kids know it. And where your heart is, that's where you'll spend your time. And this is just intrinsically something your kids know about you. They observe how you spend your time, and they make judgments about what you value based on those observations. So what does Proverbs 22 say? Train up a child the way he should go. And then what does it say? So that when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's not a promise. It's not a promise to that if you're faithful to teach your kids the gospel, that they will become believers Because we see this all the time. Older kids grow up and they leave the church. They abandon the faith. They don't want anything to do with Jesus or your church. We see it all the time. They observe church-going people to be hypocrites. And they've seen through your facade. And that's a lot of kids' testimonies. That might be your testimony. I grew up in church and they're all a bunch of hypocrites. How are we supposed to prevent that from being the testimony of our children? We can't. But what we can do is create time to teach them the truth about how things actually are. So, next thing on your notes here, why doesn't it happen? Why don't we create time? Why don't we do devotions? Why don't we spend time with our children teaching them the scriptures? And there can be a lot of reasons, but I've listed the two most prominent ones I've experienced here. Fear and then laziness or comfort. First one's fear, right? This is, I don't know how to, I don't know how to explain the scriptures, What if I read a passage to my kids and then they ask me a question I can't answer? I don't know is an acceptable answer. Most people don't know that. That's true when you're talking about God's word. It's also true when you're talking about literally anything. If someone asks you a question and the answer is I don't know, then that's what you should say. And you should feel confident saying it. I say it all the time. The other thing I say a lot is I don't remember because I don't. What's that guy's name? And my wife's like, the guy that you've been walking with like weekly for six years? Yeah, something Lawson. She's like, Jared? I'm like, yes, that's it. That's the guy. So not knowing the answers, feeling ill-equipped, feeling like I can't do this, I'm not good enough. Someone else who's been to seminary, someone else who's been a believer longer than I have should be the one doing this, not me. Not feeling like you're equipped, but all you need are the scriptures and the spirit 
and you have those things. You're not expected to be a seminary professor. You're, not expect, you're just expected to talk to your family about the word of God. Demonstrate to your kids, display to them that what's valuable to you is God and his word. And the second reason, of course, laziness and discomfort, right? I've been busy this week. It's nice just not going to work. I haven't had time to prepare, so it wouldn't be faithful for me to just wing it. I haven't really even considered it. It's just an afterthought. I, I don't know. I don't want to do it unless I've really invested time to prepare. And so well, let's just not do it this time. So you don't think about it and you don't do it until you hear a teaching like this today. And then you feel like, Ooh, eh, I should probably do this. I'm going to start doing it when I get home. And you do it for one week and you're like, eh, this is hard. I don't want to do it anymore. I feel, I feel weird. At the end of the day, our fears, our anxieties, our discomfort should not be a hindrance to us being faithful to what God's commanded us to do. Just get in there and do it. Open the scriptures, read it, talk to your kids about it. They ask you questions you don't know, you can find out the answers. And when you follow up with them three days later, hey, you remember we talked about this and you asked this question? I went and talked to Pastor Jared and he helped me understand the answer. Now I'd like to share the answer with you. And now your kids are like, oh, not only does it matter so much my parents want to do this with me, they care enough to go and find the answers for me and bring them to me because they value this above all else. What better way to demonstrate that? What better way to display this to your kids? Next, what should we be doing? Planning time together with the family to consider the things of God. This could be a million different things. So all the things I'm about to suggest and subscribe, uh, describe are descriptive, not prescriptive. And I'm, not, I'm not about to tell you what you need to do exactly. Okay? God has not commanded your fam you to disciple your family just like this. You're not meant to look like the Brower household. You're not meant to look like the Lawson household. You're not meant to look like the Catlin household or the Hoffman household or anybody else. You're meant to look like your household. So don't walk away from this feeling discouraged because I say a bunch of things that you don't do. But instead, recognize I'm meant to be faithful to do what God has asked me to do. And I'm trying to give you practical ideas about how to make that happen. Because it's likely you're already doing something. And if you are, then you're being faithful. And you don't necessarily need to alter what you're doing just because I'm about to say a bunch of things. Because if you're doing stuff, that's great. Keep doing what you're doing. This is not a one-size-fits-all kind of idea. So this should be organized. It should be a time that's designated, that we know when it is. Our families get in together in the living room with no TVs and no iPads and no phones at this time, and we're going to spend this much time, if we're able, to talk about the things of God. And I really think there should be, hopefully, three general elements that mark these times together. One would be time in the Word, one would be time in song, and one would be time in prayer. And it doesn't always have to be all three every time. But if you never look at the Scriptures, or if you never pray, or if you never sing, you're likely missing something. And additional elements can certainly be added, especially as kids get older and mature. You can add confession and repentance and deeper discussions about the things that you're reading and so on. So the first here is time in the Word. This could just be reading from a children's Bible. It could be reading from a full-text Bible like yours. You could let them read from the Bible. You could read to them. You could utilize resources that we have here at Parkway. In the preschool ministry, we give out these little take-home sheets that kind of tell you, here's what we taught your kids today. 
Here's some ideas about ways you could talk to them about what we taught them. You could do catechisms with your kids. Right, a catechism is literally just a teaching tool where you ask questions and they give answers, and the question and the answer are very prescriptive, exactly these words, and we literally memorize the questions and the answers together, and we repeat them every time we get together. That can be a useful tool. And these are really just helpful to begin teaching your kids, maybe even yourself, some of the basic doctrines of the faith. And to force conversations about things that you might not otherwise talk about. Catechisms can be really valuable in that regard. So that's time in the word. Next is time in song. Oh my gosh, we're not musicians. I can't sing. I can't carry a tune. That's okay. You could pop a CD in. Do people use CDs? No. You could hit play on your iPod. People use iPods? No. You could use iTunes. You know how it works. Push play on whatever it is that you use. You could sing a song, sing along with a pre-recorded song. You could sing a cappella. Right, you got little bitty kids, you can sing, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. You can sing that with your kids. Maybe you are musically inclined. Maybe you have a guitar. Maybe some of you, somebody plays piano. Maybe all of your kids are incredibly musically gifted, and you can sing a four-part harmony together. Great. The scriptures call us to sing to the Lord. He wants a joyful noise. He's not asking for a perfectly in-tune noise. He's not asking for it to be an accomplished musician kind of performance, you could just listen to a song together and then consider the lyrics together and talk about them. And then last is a time in prayer, praying together, teaching your kids how to pray by doing it in front of them. Pray for them and pray with them. I've got this ACT acronym on here. This is something that's been around for 35, 40 years. It's helpful. It's just a way to remember the different methods of prayer, the different ways to pray that might be helpful to you. A, adoration, so praising God. C, confession, confessing sin to God, thanksgiving, thanking God for who he is and what he's done. And then supplication, asking God to do things. Help me be less fearful. Help me be less anxious. Help me to trust you, and so on. A few other thoughts here. Ask regular questions of your kids when you get together. When you have time that you're dedicating to spending with your family, ask them questions. What did God teach you this week? What did God teach you today? What did you learn on Sunday? What did you learn when we've talked about this Bible story that we did yesterday or last week or whatever? You can ask them questions about what's the biggest and the worst thing in their lives right now. What are you most excited about? What's stressing you out the most? What's, what's your high and your low this week? What's the most frustrating and sad thing that's happened to you? What's the most exciting and good thing that's happened to you? This gets them used to talking about themselves and their experiences and their feelings, which most people don't want to do at all, and therefore they don't, and then therefore they never learn how. And so then you grow up and you have a whole generation of adults that can't talk about what's going on in their own heart because they've never done it. And just literally asking your kids, what are you feeling good about? What are you feeling sad about? Helps teach them and train them to learn to have relationships with people where they're sharing what's actually going on in their lives. So time in the word, time in song, time in prayer. How long should this last is the next thing in your notes. As long as it's helpful, given the dynamics of your home, right? Have realistic expectations for yourself. If you have one kid and they're four, it could go pretty well. You could go for like 40 minutes or something probably without a whole lot of interruption or difficulty. If you have five kids 
and one of them's eight months, and one of them's a year and a half, and one of them's three, and he's a boy, and he can't stop running. Well, then and you got one kid that's like, yes, Father, I would love to hear whatever it is that you're talking about. And the rest of the kids are going bananas. Well, maybe, you're, maybe your discipleship time is 20 minutes. But if you expect that all of your chid, children will sit still and have their hands folded and be like, yes, Father, teach us, you're probably going to be really disappointed and discouraged. So don't have that expectation. Kids are crazy town. And so part of training them is teaching them how to sit still and listen when it's, and it's time to do so, but also recognizing most kids need time to run around and be crazy. And sometimes they can't help it because you just gave them an extra helping of dessert right after dinner and then you wanted them to sit still on the couch. So younger kids are going to make this chaotic and it might make it necessary for you to cut it short. That's okay. It doesn't have to be the most organized and attentive event. It's not a classroom. Kids are squirmy and they can't sit still like you want. But your older kids can help your younger kids and that should be something they should be encouraged and trained to do. But don't let one disruptive kid dismantle the whole thing. If you've got three kids that are listening and one kid that's running around the couch in circles, maybe you just keep talking to the three kids that are on the couch while the other parent deals with the discipline issue of the kid that's running. Don't let the difficulty of younger kids make it an excuse not to do it at all, which is what we do. I did it. I feel confident every single one of you has done it. If your kids make it difficult, one of the first things you want to do is just stop. But we should instead persevere through these younger years, and when they're not old enough to sit still and listen for longer periods of time, we just do it. So that when they can sit still, and when they're older and they do understand what's going on, and they are a little bit more invested, and they do care about what's happening, and they see it as valuable, part of the reason they'll see it as valuable is because this is what we've always done. I remember when I was two and I ran around the couch, but this is something we did so that it doesn't become something new when your kid finally is able to sit still. It's something that's always been there. How often should it happen is the next thing in your notes. Regularly. Well, that's not very helpful because I don't think there's any prescription here. And I think it's dangerous to say, here's how often you should do it. I think what's more faithful is, you should do it. Should you do it every single day? Sure, if you want. Should you do it once a week? Absolutely. You do it every other week? You bet. Should you do it once a month? Great. Do it. It's up to you. Now, if you've not done it at all, and now you're feeling super convicted based on this teaching, and you're going to go home and really get it going, I would definitely suggest not trying to go to daily because you're going to wear yourself out and you're going, to, you're going to find it to be this big, difficult thing and you're going to throw your hands up and say, I knew we couldn't do it. I'm a terrible parent, which isn't true, but you'll feel that and then you won't do it. So I would encourage you to start slow and build. If you want to build to daily, great. I certainly encourage it. But you don't need to feel like if you're not doing it every day, then you're sinning because that's not what the scripture says. Your kids need to know that you value this. So is this the only time that your kids see you thinking about and talking about the things of God? Your kids get out of bed and come in the kitchen and find you reading your Bible? Do your kids hear you telling your spouse, I'm praying for you, I know today's going to be tough? It can't just be this. We demonstrate and declare and display these things to our kids throughout our days, throughout our lives. Now, who should lead this? 
Regardless of how often it's happening, who should lead it? The parents. The parents should lead it. Now, ultimately, the father is responsible for the discipleship of his children, biblically. But that doesn't mean he has to be the one, the only one, who personally implements everything that he and his wife have discussed and planned. And they should discuss it. Even if it's a five-minute discussion right before you do it, what happens during these times shouldn't be a shock or a surprise to one of the spouses. You should be unified in the approach you're taking so that you can work together. Okay, next, capture. Capture, again, this is the reactive part of discipleship. It's not always an overtly spiritual endeavor, right? There are indeed times and moments where you're going to be pointing out the glory of God in this flower that your kid notices, but there's also a thousand other places where you can capture the moments of training your child in the mundane and normal parts of life. So I'm going to really, really fast run through a whole bunch of quick ideas. Teaching them responsibilities. So chores. Community is something we're wanting to train our children in. Serving one another is part of that. Chores should be introduced early at an age-appropriate level. I have a great, pretty comprehensive list of age-appropriate chores. If you want it, email me and I'll send it to you. Money. Allowance. Teaching your children to deal with money effectively is a faithful and important part of discipleship. We're to be good stewards of what God has given us. Understanding the difference between wants and needs is a valuable thing to teach young children. Should allowance or money that we give to our kids be connected to chores or not? I think there's a good argument to be made for either. Teaching your kid how to give, to be generous. Teaching your kids how to save. How much money should they be getting? How much should they be saving? How much should they be giving? At what age should all of these things start? There's a lot of room for discussion here. But teaching your kids about money is a thing you need to do. If your kid graduates high school, goes off to college, and gets five credit cards and maxes them out because they don't understand how money works, that's on you. And so teaching them what's up with money is important from the get-go. Schoolwork and projects, responsibility is the thing we're trying to teach. Teaching children to do everything unto the Lord, even the speech that they really want to avoid in their English class. Teaching them that we honor the, the authorities that God has put in our lives, like teachers, is important. Teaching them responsibility. Devices and the internet. Limiting screen time for kids is super important. Does anybody know how much screen time even our government says is good for kids under the age of two? Zero. Even the government says it's bad, which means something. What it means, I'll let you decide for yourself. Teaching your children to manage their own screen time is valuable. Not just this method of punishment and reward for you as a parent, but it's an opportunity to teach and help them learn self-control. Monitoring and restricting internet access is another place where we teach them self-control, and it also becomes a part of our conversations that we have about sex, which comes at some point with every kid. And we'll talk about this more in just a minute, but along the same line, there's really value in protecting your home's internet connection at the router level. If you don't know what that means, ask me and I will connect you to one of the nerds at our church, which includes me, to help you understand how to deal with that. It's important to understand any cell phone that you might give your child has a separate internet connection than Wi-Fi. 
It has a cellular connection. So even though you might have protected them at your router at your house, that does not protect them from accessing stuff they should not see on their cell phone's cellular connection. Next on your list here is conversations. This is the foundation of all relationships, even with God. God gives us his word. This is how he speaks to us. And we pray. That's how we speak to him. In order for us to love one another, we have to have conversations. Conversations are at the foundation and at the root of relationship. And so we must demonstrate the value of conversation by spending time on it. This is a bit easier when our kids are little, right? Our kids follow us around and ask us one quadrillion questions. Why is the sky blue? Why is the wind blowing? How come he gets candy? Are these shoes don't make my feet feel good? I don't run as fast. Why is daddy so tall? Mommy, why are you short? Like they just ask all these questions all day. And so you're having conversations with your kid by proxy all the time. Once our kids become school-aged, a lot of their time starts being spent doing school stuff. Then as they get older, they want to spend more time talking to their friends. And so once they begin school, communicating with them becomes something you must fight for, or you won't have it. You won't have conversations, and therefore you won't have relationship. There's something else here that needs to be invested in, the actual relationship between the family members, and it only comes through conversation. So we've got to find time to actually talk with our children. But we've got to remember that there's a difference between talking with them and talking to them. When they're little, you spend a ton of time talking to them, telling them what to think, telling them how they should feel. But we need to early learn how to speak to them and find out what do they think. How do they feel? So that we are soliciting that information from them, telling them that we value their thoughts and their feelings, and helping train them in actually having conversations about what's going on in their own heart so that they don't learn from us what you need to do with all your thoughts and feelings is keep them to yourself because I don't care. And that is what we teach our kids when we don't talk with them. Even though we don't mean to teach them that, that is what we teach them. So show your kids that healthy relationships involve communication that's loving, thorough, and honoring. Keep in mind, this starts with your spouse. If you are a jerk to your spouse and super awesome to your kids, they know what's up. They know that you're faking with them and that you're being real with your spouse. All conversation, all relationship should be loving and thorough and honoring. Next is being general versus being specific with your questions. Demonstrate that you know what's going on in their lives by asking specific questions. Don't just say, how was your day? Ask them, how did the quiz go in your history class? Did that kid that made you upset the other day talk to you today? Or did you guys get that figured out? How are you doing? Demonstrating respect and honor is something we ought to be training our children in. We are to be outdoing one another in honor. So we make eye contact with the people that we talk to. So should they. What's the first thing that happens when one of you comes home from work? Do you immediately turn on the TV? Do you immediately get on your phone? Do you immediately pay attention to the kids but not your spouse? Or does the husband come home and go straight to his wife and see how she's doing and care for her and give her a hug? And he pushes past the kids to do that so that the kids learn, here's how relationships work. Daddy is all about Jesus he is all about mom, and then he's about me. And do they see that and understand that and believe it because of what they observe in you? Being an active listener when you talk to your kids, asking follow-up questions, not just waiting for your turn to talk while your kid's talking. 
especially when they're little. If your kids are talking to you, it's because they're talking to you about something that they believe is important. And so when your kid says, look at those bricks, some of them are red, some of them are dark red, most of them are dark red, right? And you're like, cool, 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 bricks. What you're saying is the things you think are important aren't important to me. And then when they're 16, you wonder why they don't want to talk to you about the stuff that's important to them then. Because when they were three, you wouldn't talk to them about bricks. So recognize when your kids are talking to you that they're speaking to you about things that matter to them, even though it seems trivial to you. So that you begin to demonstrate what you care about, I care about. And as you grow, the things that we care about will begin to get closer and closer together, which will be easier for me to have conversations with you. But for now, you're right. Most of those are dark red. What an interesting observation, my friend. What they care about will change over time and likely become more interesting to you. But if you don't invest the time when they're young to demonstrate that you care about what they care about, then you will lose the opportunity to do so when they get older. When you're talking, there should be no media or distractions. Don't communicate a lack of honor by letting your devices take precedence. Phones are down, iPads are off, computers and TVs are off, and this starts with you, and then you require it from them. Having age-appropriate conversations, I've only got two listed here, but there's dozens, marriage and sex. It is never too early to talk to your children about what marriage is and its value in society and in the kingdom of God. It can be too early to talk to your kids about sex, but this is a subject that we tend to shy away from. The world has a lot to say to your kids about sex, and the world's voice on this subject is very loud. But God's voice needs to be the first word on this subject for your kids. They need to hear the truth before they hear the lies. And so I'm not going to say there's a particular age by which you should talk to your kids, but if they turn 10 and you haven't yet talked to them, it's likely that you might have lost the opportunity to be the first word, that they may have seen or heard something already. They'll have learned something from someone else, from the internet, from some other source than the creator. But don't be discouraged if that's the case. You have not lost your opportunity. You just lost the opportunity to be the first word on the subject. I think it's important to talk to kids about the biology of sex. How does it work? Then to talk about what God has to say about it. It's meant for a particular context. In a particular context, it's good and right and beautiful, and God desires you to enjoy it. And outside of that context, it's sinful and wicked. And they need to understand that that's true and why. But then they also need to understand what the world has to say about it. You're going to see billboards. You're going to see things on the internet. You're going to see movies. You're going to hear people talk in ways that are inconsistent with what God has to say on this subject. And you should know about it. And talking about those three things, I think, is extremely valuable but, and, and absolutely necessary. How to handle relationships. Discipleship includes teaching people how to handle relationships inside and outside the home. Inside the home, there's no enemies. Your siblings are your friends. You should love each other. We love, your, we love our kids, but that doesn't mean everybody gets the same things or is treated the same way in every situation. There is this weird parental thing where we think everybody needs to get the same treat every time for everything. On this kid's birthday, all the other kids get a little present because we don't want them to feel left out. That's ridiculous. We don't need to do that. 
It's valuable to learn that sometimes people get rewards and sometimes people get praise and sometimes people get something good and you don't because that's how things work. And what does the Bible say about that? That we should rejoice with those who rejoice. So how do I learn to rejoice in someone else's celebration? How do I learn to rejoice in my sibling's birthday? That I recognize it's not about me. I'm not getting presents. I'm not getting celebrated. Nobody's singing songs to me, but I'm celebrating with my sibling. We share responsibilities in the home. We care for one another. We don't get to say things like, that's not my job. I do the dusting. You're supposed to fix that. I didn't make that mess. You clean it up. We share responsibilities. We share responsibility for the home. When there's conflict, we're going to work through it together with repentance and forgiveness being the main goals. There's so much to say here, but I've got to keep going. Let us know. If you're struggling with dealing with conflict in your home, whether that's with your spouse or with your kids, we're happy to help. We're eager to talk about those things with you. Relationships outside the home, we shall honor and we shall respect. We should love our neighbor, even if you disagree with their, world, their worldview or their politics. Because that's what the scriptures command of us. For children that are believers, if you have a child that's already come to faith, evangelism should be part of the goal of their relationships. And they should learn how to deal with that and engage in that. And that's your job to show them and teach them. How is time prioritized in your home? We remember, we demonstrate value with how we invest our time. If you're doing eight hours a week of select soccer or baseball every week and your kid can't come to youth and they can't come to community group and they can't go to Sunday morning worship, what does that teach your kids about how you value things? Does that mean you shouldn't be in baseball? You shouldn't be in soccer? Certainly not. The sports are great. There's a lot of good stuff to learn in community team sports. But do we let those things take priority? We ought not to. Rest. Do you have it? Do you actually rest? Are you always going? Are you always on the road, in the car, going somewhere, doing something? Or do you follow Jesus' example by drawing away from the busy demands of life and getting rest? Do you retreat in order to be nearer to your God and your kids see you doing this? Are you teaching your kids to do this? In terms of how to spend time and how to get involved in activities, I've got four quick questions you can ask yourself to help you discern if an activity is worth pursuing. Does it inhibit rest or worship? Does it interrupt family dinners? Are you never able to sit down at the table together in the evening and share a meal because you're always doing stuff? Does this activity sabotage bedtime for my younger kids? Does this activity pull our family apart or does it bring our family together? If you ask yourself those questions, I think it'll help you in discerning what's best to be involved in as a family. Then the last one is commemorate. This is the shortest one of the three because it is the simplest. One of the things that we see God's people doing throughout the scriptures is purposefully remembering significant moments where God has been faithful, sometimes because he commands it, other times because they are prompted by the Spirit to do it of their own volition. God wants his people to mark these occasions where God has been faithful, to rescue and to redeem them. Think of Joshua stacking those 12 stones in the Jordan or the celebration of the Passover. We can do similar things with our family. To some degree, we already do, 
But perhaps we've missed some of the opportunity to commemorate what God has done. When we, share, when we celebrate birthdays, are we celebrating that kid? It's your birthday, you're a year older, presents for you, and we're going to eat cake. Like, is that what it's about? Or, I'm not sure why I did that. I'm very sorry. Or, are we celebrating the gift of you and our family that God has given on this day, seven years ago, God blessed our family with you, and we want to celebrate that. That's a different thing. It's still fun, and you can still eat cake, and you can still give presents. Same thing with anniversaries. We've been married 25 years. Pretty cool, huh? Longer than most of y'all. Ha <laughs> we did it. Or do we celebrate God's faithfulness to keep us unified, to bless us with joy together for 25 years because of what God has done? And... These commemorations don't always have to be positive things. Sometimes it's good to remember the difficult things that God helped us get through. Our daughter, Catherine, had cancer when she was 10, and we went through a whole bunch of chemo and radiation, and it was super awful and frustrating and sad and scary and on and on and on, and it worked. She's been cancer-free for about 10 years, which is awesome. And on my calendar, I have her last chemo treatment. Because I want to remember God's faithfulness to bring her through that. During that time is when she came to faith. And so God used this horrendous thing to give my daughter faith, to increase my joy, to strengthen my conviction that my God is good even when things are bad. And I want to remember that. The point here is to make a practice in your home of remembering what God has done and to do it for the same purposes that God had his people do it when we read in the scriptures, to remember God's faithfulness in the past so that our hope will be renewed for his faithfulness that is coming in the future. Okay, so in your notes at the back, back page somewhere, I've got a bunch of book recommendations and I wanna mention a couple things and then give you a couple of books. There's a, that's a large list of books. I've read them all and I like them all. And every single one of those books, I could flip to some page and point to a few, chap a few paragraphs and be like, I don't know if I agree with this part. But that's true of every book I would ever recommend to you, apart from the scriptures. And so these books are helpful tools to perhaps inspire you and encourage you to think about how to be a disciple maker in your home with your kids. But by no means am I recommending these books because you should read them and do exactly what they say. Is that fair? Now, the first two books on the list are my favorite books for children's stuff, and they've been around a long time. Shepherding a Child's Heart and Instructing a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp and his wife Margie. These books are great. Instruct, uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart focuses more on discipline and teaching kids how to behave. This book focuses more on instruction, teaching your children. How do, we, how do I proclaim the gospel to a four-year-old and these kinds of ideas? So... Here it comes, free book time. Who wants the one, who wants to be a spankosaurus like me? Many years ago, someone accused me of being a spankosaurus because I advocate for spanking. And we could talk about that whenever you want. Anybody? Huh? I think you raised your hand first. You were, you were like nine milliseconds too slow. But I do love you. And then instructing a child's heart. <laughs> Rory, super fast. Super fast. Okay, I have two super quick last thoughts and then we'll take a couple questions. Number one, 
Some of your children, as they grow older, are going to embrace the things of God, and they're going to bring you a lot of joy by demonstrating genuine faith and repentance. They're going to be baptized. They're going to become faithful members of a church. And some of your children, as they grow older, are going to reject your discipleship and become hostile to the things of God. If that's the case for you, you need to know the Lord loves you and his ways are perfect. It would be easy to beat yourself up, to feel ashamed that you didn't do good enough. But that is true for all of us. That's true for me, it's true for Jared, it's true for every parent I've ever met ever. None of us have done it good enough. We can all do more, we can all do a better job, but we've got to remember Parents, salvation belongs to the Lord, not to you. It was never yours to give them in the first place. Your job has always been to be faithful with what God has commanded you to do, to train them up in the way that they should go. We have hope that they will grow old and they will not depart from it, but we have no guarantee. And that's difficult. That makes this work time-consuming, gut-wrenching work, but it's good work. And it's what your God wants from you. You trust him with the results because he's the only one who can produce them. So if you have a wayward child, you ought not to let that be the measuring stick of your faithfulness. The measuring stick is, did you do what God asked you to do? And number two, it's not necessary that you think of these three categories, the create, capture, and commemorate as being equal in time and in value. Some families are going to thrive by spending a ton of time in family devotions, and they really thrive there, and they enjoy it, and they do it great. Other families are going to do really, really well by capturing all these moments along the way, and they find a lot more faithfulness and joy in that. What's important is that we develop some kind of game plan, some kind of method for which we're going to make disciples in our home and chase it. And then you will fail. You will fail in the effort. Whatever ideal you set for yourself, you will not attain it, and that's okay. What's not okay is doing nothing because you're afraid of messing things up. This is a task that's been set before us by God himself, and he is always faithful to equip his people for the work that he calls them to through the word and by his spirit. So let's pray, and then we'll do a couple quick questions. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your grace and mercy to us in Christ. We pray you'll bless us as we go from here this morning to get coffee and to prepare for worshiping your name. Uh, we are grateful that you are good to us and giving us the gift of children. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.